Will you look with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans 14, verse 13 through verse 23. Romans 14, verse 13 through verse 23. The last couple of Sundays, we've been looking at Romans 14 together. And the first week, we tried to lay out important matters in terms of how to rightly understand the passage, asking important questions like, who are the weak and the strong? What, who do they represent within the church in Rome? And what, what is the, the core issue that they were in debate over? Paul calls them disputable matters in verse number one. So there were certain issues in which one group felt that they had freedom to participate in these practices. Whereas there were other people that thought their, their consciences did not give them that freedom to participate in certain practices. And so they had disagreements over what, what certain actions, activities, practices were pleasing to the Lord and which ones weren't. Paul calls the ones who had a more restrictive view of their conscience, more sensitive conscience to certain things, he calls them the weak. The ones who had a more, a stronger, robust conscience in terms of more freedom in practicing certain of these things, he calls the strong. So the strong and the weak. And the practices that were in question seem to focus on the law of Moses. So I think what we're dealing with in Romans 14, in the church in Rome, is probably issues related to the, the continuity, discontinuity, if I can use those words, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So, in other words, what areas, what laws, what practices of the Mosaic Law, the Mosaic Covenant, are still binding on the conscience of a New Covenant Christian in Christ? Which ones aren't? And there was dis- disagreement in the church over those matters. And so, As to be expected, those who probably grew up more and had a background more as a Jew, as a devout, faithful Jew, they would have been more sensitive to issues of Mosaic law. And and probably their consciences were more restricted in terms of what practices were allowed now that they were believers in Christ. And so, for example, some of them did not eat certain foods, probably in relation to the kosher dietary laws laid out, such as in Leviticus 11, other places in the Old Testament. It could have been related to certain types of meat, certain foods that were considered clean or unclean. It could have also involved just the manner of preparation of certain meats, making sure that it was cooked properly, that all the blood was drained in accordance with Mosaic regulation. And maybe if they weren't sure about that, if they weren't sure where the meat came from, how it was prepared, if it was prepared properly or whether or not maybe it had been offered to an idol before, they would just refrain from eating all meats. At least if they were in, say, a, a group that was mixed in terms of some who were more free in eating what, in what they ate and some who were more restricted in what they ate, there were some who would then just refrain. Uh, same thing with, with certain drinks, such as wine. They, they might have been concerned that this wine had been used in some pagan practice, maybe 
uh, offered to a god as a libation, something like that. So they refrained from eating certain foods, drinking certain things. There were also matters of certain special days, holy days. Paul mentioned specifically in the first part of chapter 14. So those who were more sensitive to the Jewish law and felt a continuing obligation to the Mosaic law would have continued to abide by the Jewish calendar, special holy days, Sabbath days, certain feasts that were considered holy and sacred. Whereas those who saw more of a discontinuity from the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant, maybe understanding that, that some of these practices have now been fulfilled and their, their purpose has been fulfilled in Christ, no longer see the need to separate clean and unclean foods, no longer see the need to regard one certain day a week as holy or sacred or, or certain feast days as holy and sacred. Paul would have considered himself as a part of the strong group. Even though he was a Jew and came out of strict uh, observance of the Mosaic law. We learned from Philippians that Paul was a Pharisee, that he was of uh, the tribe of Benjamin, that he was a Jew of Jews, if we could put it that way. And, and so certainly in Paul's upbringing, he would have never eaten unclean foods. He would have never eaten foods that were not considered kosher. He would have followed strict adherence to the Sabbath and feast days. But now in Christ... And understanding the implications of the gospel, and now moving from Old Covenant to New Covenant, Paul understood that these many of these ceremonial, ritual practices of the Old Testament had served their function, and their meaning has been fulfilled in Christ, in the gospel. And so Paul would see himself as strong, and having a freedom of conscience to be able to sit down at the same table with a Gentile and eat a meal. And regardless of how it was prepared, or regardless of what meat was there served on the table, Paul was able to do that. But certain Jewish Christians, and maybe even Gentile Christians, who maybe had come into the Jewish faith as God-fearers or proselytes, they might still be sensitive to the Jewish law as well. So it's not just an, an ethnic racial thing, it, it's more a religious thing in terms of observance to the Mosaic law and all of its prescriptions. But Paul considered himself strong. Others were considered weak and had more sensitive consciences to these issues. In the first part of chapter 14, Paul basically called the, the strong to accept those who are weak, to accept them. And really, he called both parties to accept each other on the basis of the fact that we are accepted by God. And so whether you're strong he says, accept those who have differences of, of opinion, of conscience, and they're more restrictive in their conscience. Accept them. Welcome them. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Likewise, to the weak who maybe would look with judgment on the freedom of the strong and the, the practices that they allowed themselves to do in their own consciences, they might have judged them and said, you shouldn't be doing that. And Paul says to them, accept them. Accept them, because we've all been accepted by God. We were sinners, but we've been welcomed, accepted into the family of God by grace. And so welcome one another. And don't judge one another. Don't stand in judgment of one another, because we have one judge, which is Christ the Lord. And it's on that that he picks up then in verse 13. And he starts in verse 13 with that exhortation to not pass judgment on one another, 
But then he's going to move into, in the last part of chapter 14, he's going to move into more matters of love and matters of faith. And by love, in the way that we respond to one another, the way that we treat one another when we have these differences of views, and faith in terms of making sure that that what we do for the Lord, we do in genuine faith to the Lord. And not because this person or that person says this is right, but we do it because we're doing it to the Lord. And so matters of love and faith are really at the, the, the center of what Paul is talking about in the second part of chapter 14. So let's read beginning in Romans 14, verse 13, and I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, verse 23. Paul says, Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, Make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for the honor and the privilege that it is to open up these ancient words of Scripture. Words that were put to papyrus by Paul some 2,000 years ago have been copied and preserved, transmitted to the churches, translated for us. And now, Lord, we have these ancient words that we can learn from your servant, whom you have anointed, to give us the word of God. He is your prophet. He is your apostle. The words that he speaks, he speaks with the authority of the Lord. And so, Lord, may we not only understand and seek to see the implications of this passage today, but Lord, may we in humility submit ourselves before its truth and its authority as the word of God. So Lord, teach us today by your spirit. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Paul's big idea, his main overriding purpose, I think is is clear in this passage. And that is he wants these Christians in Rome, regardless of their background, regardless of their ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, regardless of their religious background, Jewish faith or Greek Roman paganism, whatever their religious background, whatever their cultural 
norms or their cultural traditions, whoever they are, Paul wants them to love one another. He wants them to love each other, and he wants them to welcome one another, and he wants them to be one body in Christ. That's his overriding aim. I think what's important for us to understand is, is a little bit behind what Paul is doing in this passage. Is, is The surface of it is, y'all get along. The surface of it is, love one another and welcome one another, even when you have these matters of disagreement. But more foundational to it is why. Why is it important that we love one another? Why is it important that we be one body in Christ? And I think the reason is because we're dealing with the work of God. This is the work of God. This God is building a kingdom. In fact, in this passage, Paul says... For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He says that in verse 17. So, in other words, we're talking about something bigger. We're talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for. He says, don't destroy the work of God. This is what God is doing in Christ. He is building a church. He is building a kingdom. And it is to be on display before the world. And in order for the work of God to truly be on display before the world and to see what the work of God does in the hearts and lives of people, we need to love one another. And we need to be in agreement with one another. Be of one mind, of one spirit, one body. So the world can see this is what the kingdom of God is becoming. This is what the church is being built into. This is what Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, did for these people. He has brought people. Think about, just think about the incredible way that this would have been seen and viewed in the ancient world to, to take Jews and Gentiles and to meld them together into one harmonious fellowshipping body of Christ. To put that in front of the world to see is an incredible witness and testimony to the power of God and His grace. And that's what Paul wants. He wants them to become one so that the world can see that and bring honor and glory to God. And so he wants them to be fueled uh, by a vision of a united church, showing the world what God is like in Christ and what He's doing. And so the main point of this passage is we ought to love one another even when it constrains our own freedom. We ought to love one another even when it constrains our own freedom. In other words, Paul is acknowledging in Romans 14 and 15 that because of the gospel and because of what Christ has done for us, we have freedom in Christ to participate in certain of these practices. There, there's no longer anything that is unclean. All foods have now been declared clean by Jesus, and they're to be received with thanksgiving. Paul understands that we have this freedom now, but over and above that, more important than that freedom is how we show love to one another. And making sure that we are not doing harm to our brother or sister in Christ. We're not doing harm to the overall work of God 
just so that we can enjoy the freedom that we have in the gospel. So the first principle in this passage is the principle of conscience. The principle of conscience. And in two ways, Paul is going to talk about this principle of conscience in this passage. One way is we must never sin against our own conscience. We must never sin, violate our own conscience. Now, first of all, what is a conscience? That's a big question, isn't it? What is a conscience? What does our conscience do? How does it function? Essentially, our conscience is in our thoughts, in our inner being, and the conscience functions as a judge. the, The conscience is judicial. And the conscience is rendering decisions about our thoughts, our behaviors, our attitudes, our actions, our words. And our conscience is telling us internally either that was right or that was wrong. It's making a a determination. It's making a judgment about whether something is right or whether something is wrong. According to the scriptures, it's possible to have our consciences seared as with a hot iron. In other words, it's possible that our consciences can become so calloused, so hardened that they no longer function rightly in that capacity to point out when we are wrong. Uh, Our consciences can be misinformed. Our conscience can be trained and taught And that conscience can be trained or taught the wrong way. So that our conscience tells us this is right or this is wrong, but that conscience has been educated the wrong way. Our conscience can be trained the right way. Our conscience is not the same thing as the voice of God. Make sure that we understand that. If our conscience tells us to do something, that is not on the same level of authority as the word of God, as the voice of God. Our conscience is nothing more than our own internal thoughts. And those internal thoughts can be wrong. They can be misinformed. They can be hardened. They can be calloused. They can be desensitized or oversensitized. A clear conscience is no guarantee that we are right. In other words, you can have a clear conscience. You can feel right about an action. That doesn't guarantee that it's right. Because your conscience may be wrong. The only pure, ultimate, objective standard for what is right and what is wrong is the revealed Word of God. And so ideally, as Christians... What we are shooting for is we are desiring for our consciences, for this internal thought process to be more and more aligned with the Word of God, progressively as we walk in the Christian faith. So as we grow, as we mature, our consciences should be more and more closely aligned to Scripture, so that it becomes then a more reliable guide to what is right and what is wrong when we're presented with a choice of an action or to speak a word, to have a thought. 
So conscience, it's, it's a tool. It's something built into us by God. It can be a very useful tool when it is rightly trained and rightly governed by the word of God. But it can also be distorted. It can also be wrong. And so what Paul is saying in Romans 14 is that ultimately our loyalty is to Christ and to his word. That is the objective, clear standard of what is right and wrong. But it is wrong to sin against your own conscience. Even if your conscience may be misinformed, and even if your conscience has not yet fully caught up to what Scripture has taught, if you sin against your conscience, you are actively, purposefully rebelling against God. Because in your mind, you're thinking, this is wrong, this is not the will of God, and yet you go on ahead and do it, you're in essence committing rebellion. So Paul is teaching in this passage to, to, that we ought not to sin against our own conscience. He says, in, uh, toward the end of the passage, he says, All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is also better not to eat meat or drink or wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. That's the conscience. The person who is able to engage in an activity and his conscience is clear in that activity. His conscience says, that is okay, that is fine, that is allowable. Then blessed is that person who can do that. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. In other words, we do not have the freedom to sin against our own conscience. We have freedom in Christ, in the gospel. But that freedom does not extend to sin against our own consciences. So, if a Jewish believer who has just come to Christ believes in his heart that it is wrong to eat any meat that comes from pig. If he goes ahead and eats it, maybe because he's invited to, maybe because it's presented before him, maybe it's because he sees someone else doing it. But in his mind, if he still thinks that is wrong and he goes ahead and does it, he has sinned against his conscience. And he has done an act that is in rebellion to God because it's not an act that arose out of faith in God. So we must not sin against our own conscience. The other aspect of this principle of conscience in this passage is this. We must not put a stumbling block in front of someone else for them to sin against their own conscience. And that's where the principle of restricting our own freedom comes in. Because a a strong believer, someone who understands these foods are now clean, and it's, it's okay if I eat ham or pork or bacon, but I know that if I sit down at this table with this new Jewish believer, and his conscience is still sensitive to that, 
and, and he might be tempted to stumble. He might be tempted to partake with me. He might be tempted to sin against his own conscience. He might be distressed by, by my freedom in that. Paul says it is better, it is right for me to limit my own freedom for the sake of that person's conscience. So I must not sin against my own conscience. I must not cause someone else to stumble by sinning against their own conscience. And it's in that context that Paul says, don't destroy the work of God for food. In other words, God is doing something in this individual. He has saved this individual. He's redeemed them with his own blood and he's called them to himself. He or she is a child of God. Do not, just for the sake of your own freedom, put a stumbling block, an obstacle in their way that they will trip over and sin against their own conscience. Don't do it. Just as in the Old Testament law, it said, don't put anything in the way that a blind person could potentially stumble over. So also, in these matters, do not put anything in the way of another believer or sister in Christ that might potentially cause them to stumble into sin. Or to go against their own conscience. So there's the principle of conscience. Secondly, there's the principle of love. There's the principle of love. We must build up God's people by not undermining their submission to Jesus. Verses 15 and 16, we see, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. So if, if you're together and you're participating in this common activity and a, a, a believer whose conscience is sensitive to that, he's distressed by that, and, and it may potentially be a stumbling block to him. If he sees you doing that, you're not acting in love toward that person. You're putting a potential obstacle in his or her way. Verse 16 says, Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. Even if you're in your own mind, you are convinced that this is allowable, that I have liberty of conscience to participate in this. You think it's good. Do not allow it to become spoken of as evil by someone who has a conscience who is more sensitive to that and who might be tempted to sin and stumble over that. Voluntarily, Paul says, limit your freedom. Martin Luther had this quote. This is one of his more famous quotes. Martin Luther said this, The Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. But then he goes on and he says, A Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. In other words, we have freedom. We have great freedom in Christ and the liberty that the gospel gives us, but we're also bound to serve and to love one another. And to give our lives for them. So the principle of conscience. Don't sin against your own conscience. Don't cause other people to stumble and sin against their conscience. The principle of love. What ultimately is best for my brother or sister in Christ? Don't cause them to fall. Don't judge one another. Love one another. Then the third principle is the principle of the kingdom. The principle of the kingdom. God rules through Christ over a people who live together in right relationships, harmony, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
and this goes back to what I was saying toward the beginning, what is God doing in the church? He is building the kingdom of God. He is showing the reign of King Jesus by the way that we love and treat one another. So at the heart of this passage, interestingly enough, the way this passage is kind of shaped, verses 13 through 23, it's kind of like a sandwich. In which 13 and 23 are like the ends of the sandwich, and there are certain aspects that kind of go together. And then right at the center of it is the theme of the kingdom of God. Verse 17 and 18, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So if you have a stronger conscience, a more freedom of conscience, if you want to be pleasing to God and receive the approval of people, then willingly, for the sake of the kingdom, restrict your own freedom. Willingly, voluntarily, in love, because you want to enhance, support, work in harmony with the building of the kingdom that God is doing. Now, God's going to build his kingdom, right? You're not going to stop God from building his kingdom. He's going to accomplish his purposes, but you can either work in harmony with that purpose or you can work in friction with that purpose. And Paul is saying in this passage, work in harmony with that purpose. Work in the support of the building of the kingdom of God and do that by showing love toward one another and making sure that we don't put a stumbling block in front of anyone else. Because really, he says, if you think about it, this is just food and drink. It's just food and drink. Don't, don't hurt, don't damage the work of the kingdom of God for food and drink. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. The kingdom of God is about righteousness and joy and peace and harmony in the Holy Spirit. So keep what's main, keep what's important at the center of what we're doing. So the principle of conscience, the principle of love, the principle of the kingdom of God. And I mentioned last time, this passage is hard to apply. Because we're dealing with an issue that is specifically focused on the law of Moses. So the easiest, clearest, most direct applications in terms of these matters of disagreement have to do with what we might find written in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. Eating of certain foods. These certain days are holy. Wearing these certain clothes. Uh, waiting this X number of days before doing this practice. Or ritual washing of hands before this practice. Or, uh, you know, the, the list could go on and on of mosaic regulations. How do we relate to one another in these things? Well, the most direct application to us today would be if someone who was of the Jewish faith became a believer in Christ. Someone who, even today, in 2019, who has been a member of Judaism, a Jewish believer, and they have orthodox, very sensitive to the matters of the Mosaic Law and the Torah, and they then come to see that Jesus is their Messiah, their Christ, their Savior, and as we welcome them into the same body, we're going to be dealing with these issues, these matters of how do we relate to one another. And so that could have a very real application to today. Beyond that, 
I think one of the one of the ways that we could apply this is say maybe uh, someone who's coming out of a certain religious tradition, maybe not Jewish, but but maybe coming out of Islam even. Maybe someone's coming out of Islam, and out of Islam they have certain rules and regulations about what they eat, what they don't eat, and and they're very sensitive to that. Well, we need to bring them along and show them the full implications of the gospel, but we also need to be sensitive to their consciences. What about someone who comes out of maybe a different Christian tradition, maybe a, you know a more strict, maybe for more like as I grew up as a more fundamentalist, strict, legalistic type religious background. And, and there are certain taboos of what you wear, certain taboos of what you listen to, what you watch, and, and different things like that. And, and they come into our fellowship. We need to be sensitive to those matters of conscience. We need to seek to grow together in our understanding of the gospel and its implications. But along the way, we need to be very sensitive to their consciences and make sure that we show love and not put a stumbling block in anybody's way. Again, the matters of application are there. It starts out very narrow with the Mosaic law. You can move out from there, but the farther you move out, the more tenuous those applications become. But the overriding principle that Paul is teaching in this passage is really clear. And that is God is saving his people. He's building a church. He's building a kingdom. He's seeking to make it one, unified, harmonious body of Christ. So therefore, let us live that way and show love to one another and not cause other people to stumble so that the world may see this is what God is doing here. And so may God work among us even in matters in which we might disagree about whether or not that's allowable or not as a Christian, we'll have those disagreements. But over and above all of that, let us show love to one another and deference to one another for the sake of the kingdom of God. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, you are so gracious and merciful to us. We thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have bought us out of our bondage to sin and its penalty and its power. And Lord, now you have brought us into the kingdom of light and you're shaping us, you're molding us into the image of Christ. You're doing that not only individually in our lives, but you're doing that collectively as the body of Christ. You're molding all of us into your body. And we're all at different stages of growth and understanding. And so, Father, help us to have love and charity toward one another in areas where we might disagree, in areas where we might have a different view of what your Scripture teaches. Let us be sensitive to the, the long-term health and growth in godliness of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. May we have a great zeal and desire for your name to be magnified and exalted among us as your people. Lord, help us to be the light in this world, in this community that you've called us to be. And we pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.